Gareth Hughes and Bridget Morton are our commentators today. Gareth is a former Green MP who now works for the Wellbeing Economy Alliance, Aotearoa, and is no longer a member of any political party. Bridget's director, the public and commercial law firm Franks Ogilvie, a former senior ministerial advisor for the previous national-led government, a national party member, uh, and who also volunteers and campaigns for its deputy leader, Deputy Prime Minister, she is now. Nicola no, she's Willis. not Deputy Prime Minister. Oh, she, no, she's not. She's Finance <laughs> Minister. Sorry, I forgot. We haven't talked much about the other two parties the last few days. That's why. You know, the political year started and all we were talking about was Act and New Zealand First. Finally, the Prime Minister got to get some TV time. <laughs> Adam McSpag, it was last night on the news. Uh, what did you make of the, of the State of the Nation speech? Well, I mean, the State of the Nation, and no disrespect for the many people that work on them for the various years, they're not a particularly exciting political piece because they're a very set piece. I think they talk a lot to the base. They, you know, are really about setting the scene for the year, and that was ultimately what was happening here. You can see, basically, the line between um, Nicola Willis's speech on Thursday, the Economic Forum, to the State of the Nation yesterday, through the budget. It's going to be hard. That's basically... It was the, all rather that, that bleak, is, It was a bit bleak. Yeah. Um, I think they're really sort of scene-setting for the fact that there's not going to be a lot of money Money. There's going to be a whole lot of things cut that because they have to, and there's going to be a whole lot of hard decisions. So I think they're setting up for those difficult political um, headlines that are coming. Well, you know, it was an opportunity, which I'm sort of, to, to be honest, sort of on the fence with it. Was it a missed opportunity? You know, he spent the summer in the shadow of Peters and, and Seymour. You know, the, the country's been wracked by this debate around the Treaty Principles Bill, where Nationals position about what they're actually going to do with this vote's been on the, on the fence. You know, this was a chance to grab the narrative. We know what they're against, but we still don't know what the government's for and how he's going to get these three parties to actually have a positive agenda. So we didn't hear that. We didn't hear this resetting where the government was going. Instead, it was a, a bleak sort of grim affair, like as Bridget said. And so I think actually where they decided to fall was setting the narrative, trying to paint the previous government as, you know, reckless fiscally, trying to set up the country for cuts. So I think he's basically digging the foundations for a sort of a, a more of an austerity approach. And did he do it quite well? Because he's often criticised for, you know, um, a lot of sort of business speak and, you know, it wasn't inspiring. But was it a better delivery, at least, that made you listen to what was being said? Yes, I think indeed that he had some, you know, he really strung that narrative quite well in terms of putting through a number of sort of facts and that sort of thing. I don't think it was one of those speeches, nor did any of us expect it to be, that we're going to be talking about okay, so even beyond Obama. next week. Okay. No. <laughs> but there <laughs> were things like, one, one thing that did strike me was where he said hard decisions we're going to make together. Now that's a clever line. Mm. Like that's saying, you're in this too, this isn't just us being mean. But I think that part of that, sorry, um, is the fact that it's a bit of a change of narrative from last year where you could see there was a clear rhetoric against the previous government for doing things to people and not realising and being out of touch about how hard it was out there. So I think he's really trying to say, look, we know how much you're struggling, but we've got to make these hard decisions together to get ourselves out of it. Well, I mean, the delivery, a lot of pundits sort of picked up. It seemed a bit more natural and relaxed coming into sort of his own as Prime Minister now. But it it was this grim, sort of bleak, very negative view of the future. And, you know, I I like the line, you know, tough decisions that we're all in together. But it does feel like we're being set up that some people are going to be paying those tough decisions, which we'll talk about later with uh, tax cuts for for landlords and income reductions for beneficiaries. They have to do this, though, because it's that old line. um, Someone used it this morning in one of the articles. Um, you know, when the pundits start getting bored with a lie and the public's starting to hear it. So between now and May, 
uh, I don't think we're, we will hear much of a different tenor. There's still blaming the previous government for all and sundry, but there was also more of a forward look to what the consequence is going to be. OK, and as you said, um, the Finance Minister's speech, very much similar tone. And you're very right. I mean, this is what parties invest a huge amount of their communications is awesome, saying the same thing over, over and over, over again. until they get literally sick of saying it. And I think we're going to hear fragile nation, you know, tough love, uh, obstruction economy, these sort of buzzwords which the opposition picked up ad nauseum. Yeah. Okay, fragile. I wonder how many focus group whiteboard dramas that one went through. But it's it's also quite a clever word. Uh, okay, let's talk about whether rubber hits the road. Apologies, Gareth. Um, on um, electric car, rubber hits the road. On the the another of these matters, easy to cancel things. We were talking before the break about the cancellation of the Kiwi Rail IREX project. Easy to cancel things, but then what? Last week we saw a little bit of what might replace the policy formerly known as Three Waters. Still a lot of vagueness. Um, a pledge, if I have this correct, by Simeon Brown, the Minister Responsible, who's with us tomorrow, by the way, listeners, on transport and hopefully a little bit on this. Um, a little bit on, yes, there needs to be balance sheet separation, but the councils will still own the assets. We're yet to test whether that's even possible, Bridget. I think you've got a declaration. Yeah, absolutely. So it's always through the three waters. We've got various clients with various views, but I think probably you can sum them up with as they did not like three waters. <laughs> so this is very much, I think, they're looking with optimism towards this approach. And I do too as well, I have to say. I think you know there was a lot of very genuine problems with the three waters approach you can see what they've done here um they've i think they've really pushed what you're talking about is that sort of ring fencing which we know grant robinson made a big deal about the fact that they councils currently could not you know borrow money or get the money they needed because they weren't able to in their current arrangements council controlled um organizations allow for this to happen in terms really? of separation they tested? still because if a council, you know, we've got it right here in Wellington now with Wellington Water, right? If a council-controlled organisation is still ultimately owned by the councils, are we sure that uh, rating agencies are going to see that as a genuine balance sheet separation? Well, what we've actually seen, I think, from rating agencies is actually they're more concerned about the fact that is this guaranteed by the Crown? So it comes back to actually what the Crown is actually doing here. And I think that is... A Isn't gen- the Crown still saying we're not going to guarantee this? So I think this is the bit that we haven't got... Right. The actual specifics on. I don't think we will because I mean this is very specific financing detail, and I'm not going to claim to be an expert on this. But it is about the fact about what kind of level of investment the government, the central government, is going to put in, and in what kind of financing kind of arrangements. And I think what you're going to see is actually a bit more of a individual approach to different councils. I mean, Auckland already is going to be. We know that's going to be different than rather this blanket. But you approach. see, that also raises issues because then you have the orphan councils, the little councils that are just north of Auckland, you know, or just here, or just there with a very small rate payer pace and with, uh, Jamie Klein's uh, council on the west coast is a classic example huge amounts to be spent to meet new regulation standards but very small rate payer base now who's going to want to willingly take them into their new grouping uh, and will the government end up forcing it anyway, which is what people hated about Labour? Well, what they were talking about is those regulatory backstops. So whether or not you do have a situations where this is not going to be possible, so they're going to have to force some arrangements. I think going back to the fact that these are individual type arrangements, setting up councils that are perhaps next door to each other rather than this blanket approach that yep. four entities and ten Because entities, councils are so good at agreeing with each other when they're sitting around a table, let alone with the neighbours. Gareth, what do you, you make of it? Well, I mean, it's pretty clear at this point that national 
National just hasn't done the, the intellectual grunt work, the thinking. The policy they released February last year was pretty undercooked. And now we're in the situation where councils are going through their long-term plans, they're setting their budgets for the next 10 years, and they're not going to get final legislation probably till sometime at the end of 2025. So we've got two different bills coming their way. The government in the short term saying, hey, we'll encourage you to make council-controlled organisations. That's exactly what Wellington Water is, a council-controlled organisation, which isn't working. And then they've you know gone around the country saying, we're going to bring back local control. But you can't have balance sheet separation and local control at the same time. So three waters, you might have liked it, you might have disagreed with it, but it was a practical, reasonable response that actually would have delivered the finances. And effectively what we're talking about is a financial challenge. How do we raise this 130 to $185 billion in revenue? Uh, and we need balance sheet separation, which is inconsistent with this idea of keeping local control. Just in terms of a couple of facts, Wellington Water has not got control of the assets, and this is something they talk about often as the problem, and we've seen in terms of some of the funding arrangement, Wellington City Council, etc., in terms of them actually able to get on and get so done with the work. And is then, the ownership going to transfer from the council to the new... As, as far as I understand from what I have read, that that is where the assets will sit because then they're able to they, borrow against them. But, but then they, they own. But they must own. They must own the new entity, right? Otherwise, yes, they can, they're in the same boat they were under Labor. Yes, but then it allows you to also then yeah. join up with other councils. And work yeah. But I think also what's important here is that they, we talk about this uncertainty for local government. I heard interviews over the weekend, the Hamilton Mayor, for instance, talking about the fact that they had planned. They knew, obviously, that there was a good chance that government was going to change. This was clearly going to change. They planned in terms of their long-term planning about where the money needed to sit for the next couple of years, all of that. So I don't think we should over-egg that because councils are smart enough to have seen where the politics are coming from. I don't know if we were talking, hearing the same interview, but I also heard Paula Southgate... <laughs> The mayor of Waikato, uh, Hamilton, say that you know, they're going to have 14% rate rises for the next four years as a result of the three water changes. And then Campbell Barry from Lower Hutt was talking about 16% rate rises for the next six to seven years but, as a result of those uh, three water changes. We were listening to the same interview, so this is good. <laughs> but, but the fact is that under three waters, and I think this is the bit that's got forgotten and clearly got forgotten by Kieran McNulty when he was um, going quite hard on this issue, was that three waters, you're still going to get rate rises. What they were saying, and Jacinda Ardern had to come out and very clearly admit it, was the fact that rates were still going up, but what they were trying to do was stop rates going up at such an exponential rate. And I don't think that we've got enough facts on this proposal, nor enough actual clear information on three waters even, to really say which one is going to end up with cheaper rates. And that's just the problem for the councils is they're going through this really important time at the moment and I think the strategy is clearly passing the buck. You know, councils are going to pick up the tag in the short term. We're going to see, you know, a, a massive ratepayer uh, bills going up and maybe a revolt from ratepayers as well. And as you introduced the segment, Catherine, it's becoming a bit of a theme of this government. Uh, ditching policies, scrapping policies without the replacement. We see it in Auckland with the Auckland fuel tax. We see it with the RMA. Years of work just thrown away without a, 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 a fix or um, the follow-up there. I mean, they're not having been in government 100 days. So let's, let's be a but little bit... Point, why, I think why? in terms of complex policy, like water infrastructure and things, I think we need to say this is actually pretty fast movement. There ain't no... You know, there's a technical advising group, but we haven't got the Labour 2017 where we had 100 working groups working out what the policy even was. They've got a clear direction. We don't have all the details and yet. And a new working group set up for three waters. OK, we've moved on from the... Awfully named BIMS, which is the documents written for incoming ministers, briefing for incoming ministers, to 
people actually appearing, I think, before parliamentary committees last week. And, uh, it, you know, it, it was drawn by the Morning Report host, Corin Dan, at the time. I think it was around the same day as officials quantified the impact of the government's benefit changes on child poverty. By one measure, 7,000 more would go into child poverty. Then would have been the case if Labor's plans or, or Labor's change had been retained. And at the same time, um, you had IRD not able to rule out um, retrospective tax refunds for landlords. That's all still to be worked out. I guess the contrast was there, Bridget. The criticism's been there from the start. In, when, when times are tight for government budgets, you prioritise. And it was quite a stark comparison about the decisions the government's made. Yeah, and I think this is a difficult one to the government. It's hard for them to sort of see beyond that. We know that that interest rate deductibility was a big thing for ACT, and therefore I think you're seeing another example where the coalition agreement is sort of creaking a little bit, that you've got to actually look at some of these. It was sort of they announced them in the coalition. Now they've got it and seen the books. What does this actually mean? I think it is tricky, I think, for National in terms of the child poverty space. It clearly was a big thing under the Jacinda Ardern. You know, she put this child poverty targets in place they've got to the legislative targets, it's hard for them to walk away from them. There's a whole lot of valid criticism of whether or not they're the right targets. But I think for the government, they are going to, they ran on a cost of living election, they can't ignore um, what is sitting, you know, the people on benefits on the lowest incomes and how much they are suffering, regardless of the sort of bigger picture. So what I would hope to see is that the so the talked about you know social investment approach that they do that quickly that they target that investment not necessarily blanket benefit increases but I think they're going to have to get social investment and get some of those things into the budget to ward off. Social investment isn't just about a data project that informs various agencies. Are you saying so it the way might that inform actual funding decisions? Oh, absolutely. I okay. mean, in the previous national government, which I was a ministerial advisor in, in education, we used early days of social investment data to target education budget initiatives, without a doubt. And so I, that's what I think needs to be seen. They'll have to have some of that in this budget to demonstrate that they are aware of those issues. And I love the the sound and the promise of social investment, but we just haven't seen the detail. I mean, if this was actually used to invest up front to, to help people's lives and ultimately saving money down the line, great. But we're not seeing examples of that. In fact, what we're seeing is people, say people on youth benefits who have had incredibly tough lives, they've been maybe kicked out of home or had to leave home at 16, 17, their income's going to be cut. I don't see how that is delivering any sort of social um, benefit now or into the future, we're going to see probably worse outcomes. So, look, this was another law that was rammed through under urgency. No select committee phase for this. I think, narratively, what we're going to see is every cut we see, every bit of you know future austerity, we're going to see a response. Yet you still prioritise tax advantages for landlords. And we know some landlords are going to benefit more than a million dollars as a result. At a time when budgets are tight and we're doing it tough, you know, it's clear that... Um, Public sector workers are going to get laid off, but it's um, landlords who are getting the advantage. And it's, I, I was about to say crazy, but it's unorthodox, I think it's probably some more responsible way to say it. But the way ACT wrote it into their coalition agreement, we're looking at retrospective payments for landlords. So when the budget's tight, the government's struggling, I imagine, to put together a budget with all the holes. Uh, they're, they're trying to literally pay back I'm landlords. I'm sceptical about that. I noticed the IRD being quizzed about whether there would be refunds, and I think particularly to people who paid their provisional tax during the course of this year. But I also saw the finance minister saying, details in the budget, details in the budget, details in the budget. I would be extremely surprised if the finance minister did not strongly argue the case for banking the current year's tax and moving on from there. And it's up to act what it does about that, but I would be 
gobsmacked if there was not an effort to do that in the financial situation they're in. So it seems naive that it was written into the coalition agreement in the first place. Yes. Well, I think we've got to be a little bit careful with the coalition agreements, as they always are. Well, unless you win some pieces, in which case there's just no, <laughs> there is no room to move. But, but let's they, see what happens No, no, here. but in terms of that they are a bullet point statement of what the policy is, is every single nuance in those sentences absolutely worked through? Was I think was 80% always, and there was a date put on it, I think. Yeah, but, so we're yeah. going to see, I think, always... But is that I, date of introduction or is that... Yeah, I don't, yeah. I don't know. And exactly. that's the thing. And that's why I think, you know, it's I, I don't know, but I would kind of agree with you that I think absolutely they would look to bank that. ACT has got to determine, as a coalition partner, is that the hill they die on for this budget? Is there other things they need to progress? OK. Poll volatility, we were talking about it last week with the uh, Curia poll that came out and had a big fall for the Greens, about 4% broadly for the Greens, I think, and ACT bouncing up. We were talking about how ACT had, had taken a big hit as things got nearer and nearer to the election, Bridget, that Talbot Mills has just come out, taken around the same time, I think it's curious, first week of um, February, so uh, it incorporated Waitangi protests and it also incorporated James Shaw stepping down. I think it had the Greens steady, did it? Um, yep. And uh, what, else, what was the movement for ACT? Was it lower than it was in the curious? So they, they were the two main differences. Yeah, they went down 1%. I mean, it's... As we said, one poll in time is always risky. One poll in time this, at this stage of the cycle is particularly risky. And also you can expect volatility around this time. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, it's pretty clear, you know, nation, nationals in the late 30s, Labour's in the late 20s, that, that's pretty clear, to be expected, quite frankly. ACT and Greens are a bit, a, a bit volatile. No surprise there. I mean, ACT had huge amount of national attention over Waitangi and Ratana. Uh, sort of the, the national debate was on the issue that they'd catalysed. And the Greens went through a rough spell with Goris Garman on the tail of the end of that, uh, James Shaw stepping down. With these minor parties as well, you know, the error bars actually grow for them. So it's no surprise there's vol- volatility. What's interesting, though, is, you know, that right track, wrong mm. track has turned around for the first time, I think, since what was June it, 2022. 2022. What was it? Oh, so it's a net positive. A net positive for on the right track. Yeah, okay. which I thought was interesting as well, particularly when you compare it that most people still think the economy's not in great shape. So people still think the country's going to go in the right direction with the economy. And that's a little bit, you know, those two things normally travel in the same direction together. So I think that's, if I was the government, I'd be feeling a little bit positive about what yeah. they were doing, that they may indicate that they're getting support for their approach. Was that before or after someone predicted more interest rates rises? It might have been taken before that, I suspect, uh, because there's, you know, th- th- there's a sense of will there be a turnaround at some point? Will inflation be under control at some point, regardless of who can claim that? Um, everyone's paying the price for trying to make that happen. So it- it'll be interesting if that mood shift was impacted at all by the employment stats wasn't at the start of everyone talking about a slower exit out of it, high interest rates. Okay. Well, other thing that strikes me too, Gareth, and we'll finish with the Greens and their leadership. Uh, it's not really a race at the moment. It's just I'm, Presumptive I'm gobs- coronation, I'm gobsmacked. I, <laughs> I mean, this never happens at the Greens. But anyway, um, it's interesting to me that Labour is you know, still stuck in that late 20s in both polls. And... If it recovers to its more normal kind of polling level at some point in the mid-30s, is that at the expense of the Greens? It must be on their minds at the moment as well, yeah? Oh, historically that's been the case, that the Greens do worse when Labour does better and, and vice versa. However, you have seen at the last election the Greens pick up seats. You know, the, the 
presumptive leader, Chloe Swarbrick, is really gunning for Labour, talking about trying to become a majority Green Party and growing larger than Labour. So it looks like that sort of cosy relationship with an MOU that has dominated the last sort of relationship might be up for grabs well, and, and more in a suit of Greens. The party they are competing with, both of them, is the party Māori, which I think was a shade out of the 5% threshold in one of these polls. Um, again, with provisos on it, that is a very strong party vote showing. So it's a three-way scrap in some ways over some parts of, of, of the electorate. And I imagine the next election will be a race between the block of National Act New Zealand First, depending on uh, how close New Zealand First wants to align with the, the, the government, the coalition, and the Greens, Labour, to Party Māori as an alternative governing form, uh, relationship. But I think, you know, we're talking about the Greens in these polls, you know, Labour's not budging at all. We see, you know, a huge sort of, you know, I've called it the most right-wing government we've seen since the 90s, you know, hugely um, dismantling Labour's um, legacy, yet we're seeing hearing almost silence from it, and now questions are being asked, why hasn't Hipkins put out a press release this year? Why isn't Labour taking more sort of louder, stronger positions on issues? So I think, you know, Labour can't rest on its laurels, or just sit this one out. Uh, the Greens... first year after an election defeat of this size is a massive challenge for an opposition. I take your point, they actually need to get their game on very, very quickly. But, um, some, in some ways, holding the line might not be an unwelcome result when we see yeah. what's happened sometimes yeah. post-election loss. But I think, though, in some ways, we actually don't know what when we sort of say holding the line. We actually don't know really actually where Hipkins or the I mean, Labour poll party, wise. Yeah, mm. but where they sort of sit actually at the moment on many issues. And neither do they. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's probably why you've seen a bit of silence from them. They know um, that they've got to sort of, I mean, all. Um, you know, governments that fall out of power have to sort of lick their wounds a little bit. But I think for them, they've got a lot of questioning to do. You saw a little bit Hipkins um, this weekend in the media talking about the fact that, you know, he he thinks that he should have defined his leadership a bit more differently to Jacinda Ardern's, which I thought was interesting because, you know, the policy bonfire and things, I mean, they all did really well for Hipkins. So um, I think they were really confused about where they sort of sit. I don't think it's actually a bad thing for them to be opposition for opposition's sake. It's really important to have, you know, the government held to account. And But I think they could be doing a better job of it. They could be a bit more onto it in terms of question time. I think, yeah, the fact that the leader hasn't put out a press release uh, yeah, is a bit, a bit slack. And Hipkins is right. The public don't want him barking in every car. But I think at a time when such big policy issues are being ha- uh, debated internationally and nationally, a, want to see a bit of energy. It's a, it's a resource issue too. Like, you don't bark in every car. You come out with hard facts and hard data and all of a sudden you find your staffing numbers and your research unit is back to the joys of opposition, you know. Uh, But that's where the opportunities are with this fast pace of reform. Uh, finally, I, I know you want to talk about the yeah, Greens, though. Well, well just 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 before we leave, um, we, we, we leave them. Why no other challenger? I mean, why is it sort of as you say, Queen Chloe? And no disrespect to someone from Dunedin, I think he's running, but I don't know him. Uh, but no other MP. Well, I mean, I'm not surprised that no other MP standing. She's the heir assumptive. You know, you'd be mad to, to run against Chloe, a sitting MP. But it's interesting inside the party. There's the sense that. A debate is important, and there's a constituency who wants who wanted to see a candidate come forward, and it's clear Alex Fuchs is wanting to debate things like uh, union affiliations and more sort of worker-led party than uh, what he describes as a middle-class party. I think what what is interesting is the party's not going through a big debate process. So when James Shaw and I went through it in 2015, I think there are 30 plus debates and previous you know uh, co-leadership elections, similar number of debates. They're doing two Zoom webinars and then it's postal vote. Uh, when? Uh, so I think voting ends March 8 and then the Good grief. winner will be announced on March 10. So it's quite an understated uh 
race, if you want yeah. to even call it a race. But it's you know it's, it's a hard one for the party. I think politically, you want a, a fast, clean you know um, transition. However, a big cohort in the party want to debate the issues and they see this as the appropriate forum to do it. We were talking about the Wellington um, local election and it's an interesting one to refer to for the Greens because they did pick up, was it two or three seats in the two House? Two seats in Wellington. Two and seats one in, in Wellington and one in Auckland. So uh, th- that is remarkable. I can remember the Coromandel days where it was, Jeanette's got to win Coromandel because we might not make the threshold. Now it's at the point where you've got three constituency seats. Still want a strong party vote, of course. But it's, it, it is interesting how those Wellington uh, votes stand out against a big swing blue. However, in this latest by-election, the 24% of good souls of one ward who are taking part in it, um, whatever happens, even if the Green candidate gets up to take Tamatha Paul's place on the council, very uh, recognised Green councillor, you must be asking questions about how the race is even this tight. Currently, it's an independent just ahead, but I think the specials might change that. Yeah, I mean, it's too close to call. I think we find out on, on Wednesday, but I, the Greens would have been expecting to win and win pretty big, I think. You know, this is one of the safest wards and the safest sort of green seats in, in the entire country. You know, on the back of a hugely charismatic, popular local MP now, lo- sorry, local councillor now, local MP. I think they, the Greens got a bit hammered on two fronts. One was, you know, all the water woes and financial challenges Wellington has is washing down. People are angry with the council locally. It is a green mayor, we should And a green mayor, yeah. And I think the other thing is that students were away, and that was, you know, a, a rock uh, bed of Green Party support. Mm. And uh, I think that might be why the specials I are so high I think someone rushed them in on Saturday morning. When the students returned to town. <laughs> Because there was an extraordinary change between Friday afternoon and, and Saturday. So let's see what happens on Wednesday. But specials, are, yeah, I, I, I think that too close to call. We could well see a, a flipping there. Let's see. Happy to be wrong, as always, and frequently are. Uh, Bridget Morton, Gareth Hughes, thanks very much.